Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Jessica Waters. She is a partner and operations manager at Invisible Technologies. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. Great to be here. Yeah. So how did you end up with these this crazy group of contrarians? <laughs> oh, we all have a story to tell. It was COVID and my life drastically changed in 2020. I relocated internationally and had to figure something entirely different, entirely new out. I had made a decision that I wanted to be fully remote. I did not want to have to rely on any location. And so I started moving in that position when looking for jobs. I don't know. It seemed to go on forever. There were so many bad jobs available for so long. And then I started to interview slowly. And as I, I think it was Marshall that I spoke with first here. And I was like, oh, this guy is really intelligent. He has a lot of excellent ideas and he's really put together. So I was that first impression was pretty good. And then after that, I think I interviewed with Amy. Uh, after that, I met with Cameron and then the cycle went around a number of times. And finally, it was up to Francis. Um, and I think there was a, a, a point where I was didn't really think it was real, if you will. <laughs> um, it, there was, <laughs> it just kept going on to talk to different people about different things, which was great. Um, but it seemed we were getting to know each other and maybe not so much uh, as a job interview. So it was very much a cultural fit. Um, I think obviously I was I've been in operations for many years, so I think uh, I was up for the task. That wasn't the question. It was whether I was a good fit here or not, whether I was weird enough. And yeah, it all transpired and came to a head in August 2021. And I was hired specifically to help with DoorDash, who at that time was massively scaling and it was out of hand for us and we needed people internally to help control it. So that's how I got here. And that's why I stay here, I suppose, too. Very interesting what you said about whether you're weird enough. So what is operations like at Invisible and how is that different from operations at other companies you've worked with? Well, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life, so I don't have a lot of company experience. So I'm going to speak from my own personal experience in that way. Operations in general, it seems to be putting out a lot of fires, reacting a lot to the circumstances that are presented to you and the things that need to be resolved much the same at Invisible as it is everywhere else. I find myself in a situation where I'm reacting, whether it be to my team, to my client, to the software, whatever it is, trying to, I'm trying to, always trying to create cohesion and making it all function uh, together, putting the pieces together. That's something I, I always have felt that I'm good at, puzzles, putting all the pieces together and making it work. 
So uh, very much the same here. I think in the past, uh, able to scale at my own pace a little differently because I made all the decisions. I was able to say, we need this, I need this, and then you need to do that much more easily than I'm able to do here. So that's a bit of a learning curve for me. But in general, I have a, and the reason why I decided to get a job is because we have a huge group of knowledge that I can tap into. Rather than working it all out myself every single time, I now have a lot of really intelligent and experienced people to rely on when I need a different point of view or when I need some advice or when I just don't know what's going on because I've never done this before. That's a really interesting discovery in terms of knowledge management to hear you say that there's that's one of the things that draws you to Invisible is their knowledge. But it's also interesting in terms of the entrepreneurship piece, because I was also in that place of being an entrepreneur on my own, setting my own schedule, being able to say what I would like, really define what I wanted and not necessarily have to um, uh, accord with other people. And that's one of the beauty, beautiful things. Also, one of the challenging things about Invisible is that they've ma managed to attract so many entrepreneurial people who are like that. And so then there's so much complexity in how we all do this together because we're all very contrarian. And how do you get a group of contrarian people together and actually focus on something and get a, create cohesion at that level? And so what have you learned about creating cohesion with a lot of entrepreneurial people? <laughs> it has its own set of challenges, doesn't yeah. it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like you said, we're all a group of very strong-minded individuals with uh, a lot of experience um, and we've done things well in the past. And so getting us to work together can um, be, I don't want to say getting us to work together, that's the wrong word. Um, getting us to join together on the same mission at the same time, doing the same thing is the challenge. I always feel like our biggest asset is that we come from this di diverse group of individuals who are doing their own things. We're creating tools, we're using software, we're doing this with our team, we're doing this for the client. That's wonderful that the, we're, we're all able to do that on our own. But it's also one of our biggest downfalls, I think, too, is that we are all doing it on our own. So I don't have a, I don't have a great answer for you as how do we create cohesion within my little world? I have a wonderful team that I work with and we have daily meetings and we work in the same Zoom room and we collaborate literally all the time. So myself and the teams that work for me, work with me, we have created a group where we problem solve, troubleshoot, and try to streamline everything that we do. Uh, we really rely heavily on one another and our previous experience uh, to get us through whatever the thing is that's happening and on to the next day. And so how do you create that environment within your own team for that kind of seamless transmission? Because it seems like it's really important to be honest and upfront with brevity. And how did, when you first started compared to today, what has that journey been like in terms of creating that, the context under which people can actually collaborate under this hyper? Yeah, I think it's, so the pressure is high, but the pressure to pretend like you know something is not high. I think we all set ourselves as learners, and I don't pretend like I'm the be-all, know-all of everything. There's a lot of people who know a lot more than me, and a lot of them are on my team. So I think that's really just a mindset that has allowed us to rely on one another. We, while yes, we do have titles in hierarchy, and that's incredibly important, I don't feel like any one of us uh, thinks that we're better or knows more or has more experience than the other. And those of us who do have more experience and more knowledge are 
uh, willing and wanting to share it to make somebody else's problem easier to solve or to develop them further or to show them how we've done this well. Um, so I think that's really just being in a mindset of learners and not creating a space where people feel uh, intimidated uh, or under authority and allowing them to govern themselves largely. Mm. And so in terms of your particular team, can you give a little bit more context to the audience of how global Invisible really is and where are all the people on your team and what kind of background they come from? Yeah, sure. So I'm very fortunate. I do work with a, an entirely global team. A majority of our team are in Africa and I'm sorry, a majority of my team are in Africa and in the Philippines. There's an, some other not as large of a population in Central and South America, but we do have some agents there. So I guess we're not, we don't have any Northern European or more developed nations in my team because this is process related work, which is repeatable. And our teams are, how do I say this? Our teams come from nations that are undeveloped and without much opportunity. So we, the people in our teams often have had further education and more opportunity than the general population of those nations. They will have computers, they will have internet, they will have gone to higher education school. So we are now enabling them by providing the opportunity to use uh, their skills and education that they've developed. Which is wild. And I know Francis, when he first started the company, that was like a big sort of thing was just like, how do we give opportunity to people in through this remote work that normally wouldn't have the type of this type of opportunity? And it's a wild thing because there, there's a, like another angle of it that could be talked about. But this idea of opportunity in developing countries allowed through remote work, we could kind of transition this into a conversation about remote work and what it's done because you were actually looking for a remote work job yourself. And now you're in this organization that was that has been remote for so long and to set this up to our listeners for a long time. I've been tracking remote work for a long time since 2017, even before that. And I interviewed the CEO of a company called GitLab. And GitLab is the prime example of a, of a startup that was able to scale successfully as remote first. And I think Invisible is like the only other real example of a company that's been able to scale be successful in a remote work organization in 2020, all of those companies, I'm sure a lot of the companies that you actually applied for, a lot of them made the rapid switch to remote work and it's probably not working out that well. They may learn how to do it in three to five years, but they all try to do it really quickly. And I would love to understand what your learnings have been in terms of remote work and particularly on this angle of giving opportunities to places that normally wouldn't happen. Well. So as a North American, I hold a U.S. passport, which automatically provides me the ability to go out and get a job. I can apply for school. I can do many things that most people in the world are not able to do simply because of my place of birth. So when people in developing nations do have that opportunity to go to school and better themselves, there's, not off, there's often not opportunities available for them to apply themselves. So they end up in a situation where they take a position because they need to, right? So they might not agree with everything. They might not like everything and it might not actually be a great fit for them. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they need a roof over their head and food to eat. I say this from experience because I live in, in an, <laughs> an undeveloped nation for 15 years. So I've literally seen this with my very own eyes. 
So whenever we go, whenever we offer these opportunities, they're quite literally life-changing, right? Because even if they are not earning incredible amounts of money, they're earning enough to pay their bills, to eat food, to give their mom medical care. That's always a big one, being able to provide medical care for your family because that's a luxury in most places. And have running water and electricity regularly uh, with internet and be able to send your kids to school without really worrying about it. So in my, that's quite, that's why I stay here with Invisible because we do this for a lot of people every single day. We provide the opportunity for them to have a life. And while that life is nothing compared to the life that I'm able to create, it's a heck of a lot better than no life at all. It's a heck of a lot better than not having a job or constantly being not having the opportunity to even to apply to a job because they don't exist. If I was from Nairobi, I'm probably not going to look in the newspaper or look online and see 8,000 positions popped up in my LinkedIn feed that I'm a match for. Yeah, so we really, it's life-changing. We change people's lives. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does, uh, and it's in a very potent way. So there's these opportunities, and, and so there's this also this angle of you're, you are daily connected with people who have a radically different life. We talk about first world problems. And there, I had imagined that there's not many opportunities for you to engage or to luxuriate in your first world problems when you have experience with these people. Is that an accurate estimation? I've learned there's things that you don't say. I'm white and that's enough. Yeah. Wow. I'm a white American and that's enough. But being white is really enough. Yeah. That's wild. And there's a lot of talk on that, but it's, there's a real direct experience there because it's, and I'm, I don't have that yet. Although I just went out to uh, the park with somebody, a local uh, agent here in, in Buenos Aires, and he was talking about what you just exactly said, which is that he is now the sole breadwinner for his family. Uh, and Argentina actually probably has problems that Kenya doesn't have right now, but Zimbabwe has and that uh, Venezuela has, which is hyperinflation. And so he was explaining that if he were to look at a parallel universe of his life, the, the person who like, who had that opportunity to work invisible versus doesn't work in invisible work in invisibly earns dollars. So he's able to escape hyperinflation. Uh, so he's in a position that none of the 45 million other people that live in Argentina are in, or very few, like only the upper class, the upper class in Argentina can escape hyperinflation because they've got U S dollars. They've got U S bank accounts. They can get jobs in the U S they can buy real estate in the U S they can buy real estate here. And they can actually profit off of the real estate here because they can invest as the inflation raises the prices off everything else. They own the, the assets. So the asset inflates as well. So they can actually profit off of it. Middle class in Argentina is basically getting destroyed by hyperinflation because they, they can't earn dollars. They can't have U.S. bank accounts at their prices for their rent. I just talked to one of our agents who had to sign, went from a 100 USD apartment rental to a 1000, yeah, $1,000 apartment rental in the space of a month because of all the hyperinflation the all the land owners are trying or the all the property owners are trying to make their property worth something and try to predict hyperinflation because it just jumped 30 percent in one month and so i was talking to this agent and he's yeah i provide for my whole family and without invisible i wouldn't be able to provide for my whole family and it's just such a crazy thing and it's all because of this strange thing that is remote work and i was i've been talking having a lot of conversations about this last week which is that it's all, 
it, it, it's all just so, so strange because it's, if you have access to English and that's, I think one of the big things. Oh, that well. that's huge. Yeah. English. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk more about that, about how that gets into everything we've been talking about, that skill of being able to speak English? Yeah. Communication. So those who can, can communicate can move forward. That's, that's how it goes. And those who communicate in English with the, the people who also communicate in English and do it well, those are the people who get ahead. Yeah. Um, it's such, I've seen it. I've seen it here for the last 15 years. I've seen it, it at Invisible. I've seen it. Every, it's the way it is. If you can communicate with the people and express what you know in a way that they understand, um, you've made yourself useful in some way, right? Mm. And so how are the agents that you work, how did they learn English? Did they mostly learn it at school? Have some of them learned it from like Netflix and other things? So I believe most of the, most of the world learns English to some degree. And like I said, the agents that I work with are, are probably more in the upper class of their nations because they have gone to school. They have, they do have computers. They do have internet. They have a starting, they have a baseline, a starting point. So I think that they have also uh, one of my agents once told me that he is involved with Rotary and a couple of other international organizations and being involved in those organizations builds those types of skills, right? Communication to people in other nations. Um, you have to be able to speak one language so that you're able to get your point across and to uh, become valuable in some way or another, right? Um, Otherwise, you're just speaking in tongues. Having said that, communication is so important. And I think uh, another thing that we often neglect is meeting people where they are and trying to understand them better, too. I know we are, I personally, and I think North Americans specifically, Northeasterners, which is where I'm from. I'm, I'm a Northeasterner, so I walk too fast, I talk too fast, and I can be a, just like your typical Direct. New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to slow it down and to meet them where they are and find value in them is also another part of the battle, right? Mm. Because I might ask the same question three different times in three different ways to try to understand what someone is saying so that I understand it the way that it's in their head, right? Because a lot of times whenever we all speak English, we're using the same words, but they have very different meanings. So we get in a situation where what I'm understanding what they're saying in a different way than they're trying to make me understand it. So meeting somebody where they are, taking the time to work it out and to ask the questions and to allow them to ask the questions that they need to. So you come to terms and that you're uh, thinking the same thing and conveying the same information. And it all brings to mind that there's the language we speak, but then there's the cultural context under which the language we speak. And those, I think we've talked about a little bit before on Slack, where it's just those things can be wildly different. And you not only have to learn the, the specific English that they're speaking, but you also have to learn the cultural background with which they're speaking English with all these other things that are going on. Can you, and it sounds like you already had a, you already had an international bank background before you started working at Invisible. So you're already prepared for this, but it sounds like you were all that Invisible, the demand, the operational demand, and also the, the international demand is higher because you're actually working, you're providing value at the same time as you're being international. Can you talk more about that transition from being international to actually working in an international environment like you're talking about and learning the difference between cultural languages and actual English languages? How do you have a couple of years? Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Jesus, that's a big question. 
So I think living in the North American bubble for the first 30 years of my life, I was under the assumption that I what I knew was correct, right? What I knew was accurate. <laughs> if I did something a certain way, that's the way it was done because that's the way I was taught that it was done. And that's what everybody else around me had done for the last 30 years. Mm. I didn't even know that there was other ways you could do things and get the, the result that you were after in, in some instances. And when I moved in 2006, I was, I found myself butting my head against a wall, not butting, banging my head against a wall consistently for long periods of time. And it was frustrating for me and it was frustrating for everybody around me because I simply did not understand. I did not understand. And I was in a totally new environment in a culture that I did not fit in. And, and yes, we were all speaking English. They were speaking English almost as good as I do. But what they were saying, their words did not mean the same thing as what I was hearing. And yeah, that happened for at least a year. After that, I realized I needed to like, whoop, take it down a level, Jessica. You have some things to learn here. And I guess whenever I shifted my mindset is whenever I actually got to learn how to function inside of a, a totally different and culturally different environment than what I was accustomed to. Um, probably the, the year after that, within the first three years, I thought I knew what I was doing. But looking back on things now, 15 years later, it was really until I was five years in that I was really able to work within a different culture successfully. I was able to successfully meet people at their level and value them as they were and be able to utilize that to everyone's advantage. Super interesting. And so then you had this five years where you finally cracked the single culture that you were living in. Can I ask where, which that culture that is? Uh, where I'm living in Central America and Belize. Central America. Okay. In Belize. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Cause and everybody speaks English in Belize and that's why, that's where you learn the difference between the cultural and the English spe specifically. English is what they're taught in school. It's not what they speak at home most of the time. Got it. Yeah. And then what was the transition like, not only with one culture, but with many different cultures with that same set of tendencies behind it? I don't know that there was any transition for me. I think it's all the same. So that's just the way. And I falter daily. I falter probably even hourly where I just, deep my default, right? 30 years in North America, and this is my default programming. If you say something, this is what I'm going to think. I have to stop. I have to refocus and I have to understand what they're saying instead of hear what I think I'm hearing, right? Yeah, but I don't think there was any transition for me to be able to do that apply that to people in Africa or people in the Philippines or, or South America, wherever it is, yeah. Okay, totally fascinating. Okay, so we've got our, uh, the cultural background, we've got the English background, we've got this remote work thing. Uh, okay, let's talk about something fun as well, AI enablement, because now Invisible is moving towards AI enablement for its customers, and it feels like AI enablement in your department is probably the most applicable because we're actually trying to figure out how do we actually implement AI. We've got a bunch of agents all over the world. They're smart, intelligent individuals who are doing really interesting things, and they're uh, actually like paying for GPT to improve their own jobs uh, before anybody was uh, catching up to it. And, and can you talk more about this, like how you guys are actually doing AI enablement at Invisible? Yeah, you are definitely a key piece in this story, Stuart. You started introducing AI uh, information, just general information. And as I started reading it, I was like, wow, this guy's right. He, this is the future. It's going to be people who understand how to use this tool to create results, right? This is enabling literally anyone in the world who has 20 bucks a month to create 
I don't want to say anything, but they can create a heck of a lot of solutions with GPT-4. I had started to collect resources, I think simultaneously while you were collecting resources and just sharing and brainstorming in our meetings sometimes, nothing major, until my one agent, Ashish, started to create these amazing things. And I had no idea that was possible, what he did. And literally, he enabled an entire project and went way over expectations, way, like way over expectations. And I said, this is a thing and we need a lot of people to do this. It's fantastic that he's done it and I'm totally in awe, but imagine if we had a hundred or a thousand people who could do this. Now that's changing not only our world, but the world, right? We're changing the way the world would operate at that point. I got hyped up on it for a while. After he created maybe the third or fourth thing, I was like, we really need, I need to make a move here. Something has to happen uh, because we need a team of people who are enabled. And this isn't for everyone. I'm, I don't deal with code. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. I'm a software person. I can go in the software and make the changes that I want. And then I get the results that I need. Uh, input the information. It provides me charts and graphs and all this fancy stuff. So I'm not that person, but there's many people here who are. And so at one point I was really excited about it. And I replied to one of Francis's emails that if we had teams of people who were able to create solutions, like we could change the world, right? Then my manager um, started to create an AI group using the one agent who I had that created these wonderful results and another team member who is also pretty tech advanced. And they're now they're geeking out on it for the last three weeks. <laughs> Good news. They're both very capable. My idea would be to have them teach and guide everyone who has interest in this, right? Because I don't know how to do that. So if I said, I have this problem, what kind of solutions have you created? And there's like a little library of I've done this and this, and I can review it and see what it looks like and say, oh yeah, that might work for me. I'll start here. And then I start with this creation of my solution and I get stuck and I'm like, I have help. I have no idea what I'm doing. And then I would have that team to go to who could say, oh, you did this and this, try that. I go back to the drawing board. I try that and so on and so forth. So like a team that leads and guides and provides samples and instructions, but not a team that does the work for every team. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Yep. And it, it's so wild because the same, so Invisible is now doing AI enablement for companies. We were an AI trainer, so we're training the models and we want to leverage that experience to then go into AI enablement. And it's so funny to watch it from the inside. I, I'm just like incredibly curious about this technology, but I'm not, so, I am solving my own problems in terms of organization, in terms of build, building an internal unit. I'm, so, I'm using AI to solve those problems related to my customer Invisible. Uh, and soon enough, customers outside of Invisible. Uh, but, and as a part of a sort of meta thing, I'm, I'm now watching all these agents who are using it like Ashish uh, and see them solve their own problems. But for me to understand those problems that they're solving, it takes so much contextual bandwidth to think about that and to think about, because then this goes, ties into how Invisible is unique because it solves so many different problems for so many different customers. It's and my ability to understand context quickly is good, but it's way over my head to try to think of what Ashish is doing. And so then, and it's a key problem of knowledge management as well. Knowledge management managers traditionally in larger companies aren't supposed to go in and do knowledge work. The idea is how do you facilitate people like Ashish to do their work better? And then, so to see that an AI enablement, and as you said, 
It's I've seen you you pushing for it, and I love it. I love seeing it because we as a company are starting to do AI enablement. But if we don't do it for ourselves, how do we actually show other companies how to do it themselves? And now, thanks to you really pushing this, like we actually have AI enablement. And and, and I'm curious, and this is like a, we're pretty transparent as an organization. Uh, are, is Devin starting to think about including this in our AI enablement uh, demos for other companies? I have no idea. I've, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain. Yeah. I, I, I wish that I was the one leading the whole thing. That was where I was hoping to go. Yeah. But I mean, there's still the, there's still the space for that to happen because you've got the people who are actually doing this work like Ashish. And I guess it is building in public. How can we do that? How, cause I've seen you pushing for it. And this is one of the challenges that I'll be a little bit vulnerable here. This is one of the challenges at invisible. It's been so hard for me to figure out how to crack is like, how do things at invisible get done? Kind of <laughs> question, but how do they actually get done? <laughs> I was actually going through this yesterday and this morning as these emails, I'm sending my fifth reply. Can you, yeah, sometimes six. How do things get done? Largely by solving the, the problems yourself, right? So that's number one, find your own solution. And number two is talking to the right people. So if you're trying to specifically get something from like a head of department and you have sent that email three, four, five, six times and you're still not getting a response or a valid response, the beating around the bush thing, mm. go to the next couple levels down, see what it looks like on the inside. And then it would depend on how important this thing is, right? If this is an important thing that I absolutely have to do, I'll, I'll go a couple levels down and see how I can get it done. Interesting. And that's the beauty. That's a beautiful knowledge management thing, because as you mentioned, there is a hierarchy to invisible, but, and while that hierarchy is really important at the same time, it's a fluid hierarchy. Um, and I've found so much value from just even the last week of now that I'm actually in Argentina and I'm like, it's so cool getting to know the agents because another thing about invisible is very cool is that they're not only are they hiring extremely intelligent full-time uh, team members, but they're also hiring extremely intelligent agents. So I'm learning like philosophy. I just spent an hour talking about philosophy with a, one of our agents here who's a lawyer. And at all different at all different levels of the company, I can learn these amazing things that are starting to not only have really allowing me to map invisible, which is the key thing about knowledge management is how do you map the whole company? And what you said about finding out at different layers of the organization as well is really interesting. I guess that's an opportunity to ask you a question too about knowledge management, what do you, so I'll give you my explanation of what knowledge management is. I think I've said it a few times. There's the state of the company as it is today. There's the state of the company as it will be in the future and the state in the past. And so we're mapping all of those different things and trying to draw out uh, 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 support so that we can make better decisions in the future. And then we're also mapping the higher level of the company. There's a strategy, there's the executive level and everything like that. There's the middle layers, the, the managers, and then there's the actual operators. And so mapping all those different levels as well, and really focusing on being decision support. How can I do my job as a knowledge manager better? How can I understand Invisible as a company better to, or what, here's a better question. What are the key gaps at Invisible in terms of knowledge management that you would like to see solved? There's a couple. I would say, first is knowing what's important to me what's applicable to me. I feel like I get 300 emails a day 
that should probably just get sent straight to archive because while I would like to read all 300 of them, it's not, I, I can't. Yep. There's just not enough time in the day. I'm thrilled that we have that many emails, but most of them don't apply to me. Knowledge management, where I can find what I need when I need it. Mm -hmm. So I had an agent recently ask me for code of conduct for invisible, and I had no idea where to look. So I contacted Peoples and it's been a back and forth. At this point, I don't know. I still don't know where to find it. So knowledge management would be giving the user the ability to find what they need as they need it and giving them what's relevant to them. The code of conduct would be relevant to anybody at the company, whether it be an agent, a partner, a specialist, whatever. We should all have some kind of guidebook, manual, playbook, code of conduct, something that outlines who we are, what we stand for, what we tolerate, what you can expect from us, what we expect from you, that sort of thing. So there, there's a, a prime example right there just from the last week or so. What was the second part of that question? I'm sorry, can you repeat yourself? Uh, yeah, so just what are the gaps you're experiencing? What What does Invisible do well in terms of knowledge management and what can it do better? I think we all try our best to organize it in a way that makes sense to us. What we could do better is organizing it in a way that makes sense to everybody else and is applicable to all other people in the organization or not, um, or keeping those 300 irrelevant emails out of the inbox, even though I really want to read them. Um, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. Let's go. So yeah, yeah, let's go into those emails. What are, so are these all emails? How does invisible work in terms of communication? Are these all emails that you're getting because they're, you've been CC'd or is it because there's a Google? So group? some of them I've, I've now archived them as they come in. So I don't have as many as I used to, but starting as a small company with 20 people, everybody needs to know everything. So something like um, shared files with a client, they come through. There's a couple of clients that we have that share files via, it was OnePass, I think we were using the security thing. They also shared them in files. There was a number of places where files were being shared. And because I was in operations, I was part of, on that distro list. So for a couple of years, I was receiving multiple client files that are irrelevant to me, right? I can't do anything with them and, and they're just taking up space in my inbox. Like I said, I've archived them, but there's an, a lot of information like that gets shared. So the important things can get lost. And this is something I think about, I think about a lot about, and this is what's called information architecture. And I actually think that Invisible is actually still too early to have really solid knowledge management that knowledge management really is about companies with like thousands and thousands of employees, which we do in terms of, we have agents, we have thousands of agents as well, but Invisible is still a little bit early, which is good because uh, now I've gotten this opportunity to see Invisible as it's growing. And now I can go serve other companies and learn the difference and similarities between Invisible and other companies, develop those solutions, create an actual business model for those other companies, and then come back once Invisible is really big and take those learnings and apply them to Invisible. And yeah, go for it. Sorry. Don't you think too, part of the challenge is that everything changes so quickly? Yes. There, it, we're at, at such a rapid pace that there's absolutely no possible way for humans to keep up with the amount of documentation that reflects the current state and updating and creating new and, it, and we would have to have machines to do that for us at this point. And that's the, and it, so this is where knowledge management has failed in previous times. It, it, it was started in the 1990s by Intel. And the idea was that we capture all the information, we make it applicable, we make it useful. It failed. And then Google came around 2001. 
Google actually never had really good knowledge management. Facebook came around. Facebook never really had good knowledge management. And so now there's a sort of promise with AI, which is that maybe with these LLMs, we can actually finally have good knowledge management and deliver the right information to the right person at the right time inside of a company. But then the, knowledge, the AI will also start to create exponential amounts of information as well. So it might just be like, here's the knowledge, the information getting created. And then here's the knowledge management's ability to keep up, but there'll always be a gap that'll continue. So yeah, it's a very interesting time. This is basically the third wave of a knowledge management. And I'm excited to see whether we can actually do it at Invisible. But this is not just a problem inside of organizations. It's also a problem inside of our personal lives as well. We have 15 different software pieces that we keep in communication with our people in our, our, in our, our personal lives as well. You're on WhatsApp, you're on Facebook Messenger, all these different things. You think about it 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you wanted to get in touch with somebody, how would you do it? Pick up the phone. Yeah, you just call them. And then text message gave you one more option. And we had mail for a long time. And now we're stuck in this just ridiculous situation where it's like, in order to keep up with the people in my life, I have to check 17 different sources. And then in the organization, it's even worse. Because not, not only do we have those same for sources of communication, but we've also got 15 different pieces of software. Finance is used, uses NetSuite. And that's really the promise of what we're trying to do is that hopefully with these machine learning algorithms, we can stitch together solutions that will solve all these things. Do you have any thoughts on anything I just said? Yeah, it's too much, isn't it? All these places where we communicate is too much. So I didn't have a smartphone until about seven years ago, maybe six years ago. I refused. I said, I, I answer emails all day. I talk on the phone all day. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I am not submitting. That, that was my thought, right? I'm not going one mm. more place to have one more thing to keep me occupied doing things that I really don't want to be doing. <laughs> then it came, there came a point where I couldn't put it off any longer and I had to get a smartphone. But I do, and maybe it's because I'm an older generation, not older, but older than a lot of the young people here. I didn't grow up with WhatsApp and cell phones and things like that. And it's amusing, but I have no interest in spending my whole life there. So I think probably I'm quite good at shutting it out, turning it off, turning off the notifications and tending to it on my time versus being more reactive. Now, that's not true here at work, though. Here at work, I feel like I'm a slave to Slack messages most of the time because that's literally how we communicate, you know, inside of Zoom or inside of Slack. So whatever's happening, I have to be very attentive to in those mm -hmm. channels. What you just said is very interesting because you resisted the smartphone and you started it at Invisible in 2021. And then we started to get involved in AI. And I would love to hear if you're resistant to a smartphone, what is, what is your take on AI? And where do you think it's going? What do you think it represents? Oh, I'm all for, I'm all for yeah. things that can do things for us. So yeah, if, right. I, if I could plug AI into my smartphone and make it answer those messages, yes. <laughs> yes, I love software. Software changed my life. And having AI gives us the ability to, to modify it to our needs. Mm. I'm not that familiar with it and don't know how to do those things yet, but I'm hoping there does come a time when I can say to my phone, it'll have AI enablement. I'm not interested in getting any notifications today. Please only pull through from, I don't know, two specific people from my daughter, right? I only want to see messages from my daughter today or whatever it might be, or turn off my notification for WhatsApp for the next two hours, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. And it's so interesting because that's coming, but nobody knows when it will happen, but it might happen pretty quickly. 
I don't know if you already have, we already talked about it in the little AI knowledge management talk we, we had, but now I can take photos with my phone, put them into ChatGPT and the ChatGPT can read those photos. So I've been taking pictures of all the plants and the, the trees inside of Buenos Aires. ChatGPT is accurately telling me all this different stuff, which is just such a wild thing. And in a couple of weeks, maybe a month, they're going to introduce voice chatting so that you can actually just talk with the phone to, to, as you said, go do those things. So I think it could happen pretty quickly. And that's that, awesome. yeah, that promise of technology to actually just take away the drudgery is really great. And that's why I'm at Invisible. Well, actually, maybe for the last question, I would love to see, because that is that what drew you to Invisible as well? Is that part of the thesis is that Invisible can take away the drudgery and then now yeah. to see this kind of unexpected thing with AI happen that we're right in the center of it as well, which is that we're going to be able to AI enable some of this drudgery away. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I'm off. I don't want to be bothered with Gmail and Slack and all these stuff. I think that it takes away from my time, but I believe that I'm a big, pro, pro, uh, a big, what is it? Let me say proponent. I'm a big uh, advocate for software in general and making people's lives better and easier and faster and more efficient, solving problems, creating new paths, better ways, making things better. And it, I've had personal experience and professional experience where I've implemented software that's quite literally changed my life. So it's given me the ability to get back my time. It's given me the ability to scale. It's given me the ability to automate. It's given me the, the ability to maintain employees, to moderate what they're doing, to assign them tasks, to do. It's like infinite. It allowed me to do things that I didn't even know were possible that I could do because now it's within the software and software is controlling the thing. So yeah, that is a huge reason why I'm also here at Invisible to make things better and for then, oh. businesses, for people. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was it like? Was it a huge surprise to to get involved with this AI stuff? Did you know that going in that we were involved in AI or did that happen afterwards? No, that happened after I was here. I guess when AI came in, we, none of us really knew like how big this thing was or what this thing was going to be. We really, I don't think any of us had any idea. And then as Teams started to move and hiring started to take place and people started to get excited in tech. And we were privy to some of the workflows and things that they were doing. It was like, wow, this is amazing. So that was during the training phase that they were doing. And then we moved into the phase, I think, in the last probably nine months where we are now seeing the results of that training. So we weren't the only ones who trained Many other companies also train, but now we're able to use that information widely to for everything. It's incredible. It's mind blowing if you think about it. I can't even wrap my mind around the whole thing. It's mind bending. Which is goes back to the early point about the AI enablement was to see the gap because we I forgot to mention this. We were we're we were in the same position that all of the big companies are now in right now, which is there's a huge thing that just happened. And because we, as you mentioned, we had that AI training, so we were already above the curve in terms of knowing that is happening. And so it happened earlier for us about, and then having no idea how to enable it. And it was just like sharing information and, and understanding it. And then there's that, that gap between just sharing information, getting excited about it, being passionate about it, to being like, okay, how do we actually turn this into a standardized way to help ourselves? And I'm, man, if that knowledge isn't being shared to people outside by Devin and stuff like that. I, I would love, uh, I, I asked Devin if he wants to do a podcast and I think we'll do it soon. But I think that it's connecting the sellers who are selling these AI enablement to 
the people on your team, I think is going to be really important in developing those stories. And so it feels like knowledge management can maybe be able to play a part in that as well. What do you think for the last couple of minutes? Yeah, absolutely. And I've also thought places uh, what are, like Upwork in those kind of free marketplaces, the people who are going to succeed the, the most mm -hmm. there are the people who are AI enabled, the people who know what this thing is and how to use it to their benefit. And I can see this turning into a, a whole new like marketplace, if you will. People who know how to use this tool it is, I, I'm like I said, I can't, it's mind bending. I can't even wrap my head around all the things we can do with it or all the things that we will be able to do with it. We just need the people who understand it to teach other people who don't understand it as well and to get the learning cycle going and have everybody using it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if anybody's listening to this and connected to the invisible audience or wants to be, how can they get in touch with you and what's the best framework to get in touch with you? Or what are those things that kind of light you up that you really want to share with, share people with? Oh, I'm always passionate about learning about other people, what they do, what makes their lives tick, where they're from, what's important to them, what books they're reading, what experiences they've had that's changed their lives, that sort of thing. So if you have anything interesting to share or want some different perspective or I don't want to hear my life has been pretty cool too. Want to hear some amazing <laughs> stories? I have them. Best way to connect with me? Probably I'm most responsive to WhatsApp because I'm very selective of what I pay attention to there. So that's why I'm most responsive there. My invisible email address is jessica.waters at invisible.email. And then, of course, on Slack, you can find me there. Cool. Thank you so much, Jessica. Okay. Thanks, Stuart. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Yeah. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.